We read in God's Word this evening, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. We read this in connection with the concluding words of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches the church to pray, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So as we read through Ephesians 3, I encourage you to look for the instruction from God's Word about the kingdom, the power, and the glory. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, and to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Thus far we read God's holy and an errant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. It's on the basis of Ephesians 3 and many other passages of 
God's Word that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52. Two weeks ago, we considered question and answer 127 of this Lord's Day. Tonight, we look at the last two questions and answers 128 and 129. Question 128, how dost thou conclude thy prayer? The answer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all these we ask of thee, because thou, being our King and Almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. What doth the word Amen signify? Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider at the conclusion of this round through the Heidelberg Catechism the final words that Jesus Christ gave unto His disciples in the model prayer that He gave unto His church. And the final words of this prayer that Jesus gave to His disciples, to His church, and thus to you and to me, is not yet another petition. We have and going through the Lord's Prayer and seeing that there are a number of petitions that we are asking of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We asked him for daily bread, and we asked for the pardon of our sins, as well as that God would guard us from falling into sin, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But now in the concluding words of this model and perfect prayer that Jesus Christ gives unto us, we are not here asking God for anything. But instead, Jesus Christ in these words gives unto the church a doxology. He gives unto us words of praise and adoration unto God. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And here the church, as it were, lifts up her voice in exalting the great name of our God. Here the church pauses in order to praise God for who He is and for all of the wonderful works that He has done for His church. And so how appropriate then that in the Lord's providence we may look at the final words of the model prayer of Jesus Christ after partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. For this morning we tasted of that heavenly meat and drink from on high. 
This morning we heard the words of Jesus Christ as He declared unto His sheep that their sins are forgiven them because of His finished work at Calvary. And having now tasted of the goodness of God unto us, what a more appropriate way to respond to His grace unto us than by pausing and praising the name of our God. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All praise to God. We use the three parts that Jesus gives unto us as the final words of this prayer as the three points for the sermon tonight. All praise to God, first for His kingdom, second, and His power, third, and His glory. His kingdom. For Thine is, Jesus teaches us to pray, the kingdom. God's is the kingdom. It belongs unto Him. It is uniquely His. He has the right to claim it. And nobody else has the right to claim the kingdom, for His is the kingdom. When Jesus Christ teaches us to pray that His is the kingdom, what, you mean, what, what we mean as we pray these words is this, beloved, that God's alone is the right to rule over His kingdom. That God is absolutely and undisputedly the King Sovereign who rules over all things. Thine is the kingdom, and to nobody else belongs the kingdom. To speak of the kingdom and to try to understand the kingdom really cannot be done apart from understanding the King who sits enthroned and who rules over the kingdom. For the kingdom really is an extension of and a revelation of the king who has created the kingdom and who guards the kingdom and who defends the kingdom and who draws people unto himself within the kingdom. We may speak to be sure of many different aspects of the kingdom. We can speak about who are the subjects of the kingdom, the citizens. We can speak about what is the boundary of the kingdom, what is the realm of the kingdom, what are the walls that are established as the kingdom. We may speak of the laws that are within the kingdom, the rules that govern the citizens of the kingdom. And all of these are important aspects of the kingdom, and yet they are not the central part of the kingdom. Central to the kingdom is God. For thine is the kingdom. The chess player understands the important importance of the king. There are rules that you follow as you play the game of chess. You put the pawns out, the bishops out to fight and to battle. 
But the ultimate goal of the game of chess is the preservation of the king. In an infinitely higher way, the kingdom is all about God. His is the sole prerogative to do as He pleases. For His is the kingdom. There is no one higher than God in this kingdom. God does not answer to anyone but Himself. For His is the kingdom. The citizens of the kingdom must not angrily shake their fist in the face of the one who rules over the kingdom, demanding of him an explanation for why the king has done this or done that in the kingdom. Jesus did not teach us to pray that yours is the kingdom, but thine. God's is the kingdom. That God's is the kingdom means that God has the right to rule you. This is not simply an abstract discussion about some king who rules off in a foreign land and who has the right to tell people in that distant land how they must behave themselves, how they are to live, and how they are to order their lives, and whom they are to worship. But when we say, thine is the kingdom, we who are Christians recognize and confess, I am a part of this kingdom. And because I am a part of, a citizen of this kingdom, and this kingdom belongs unto God, therefore, God has the right to rule over me. We confess this in the Heidelberg Catechism, that God is our King. We say in answer 128, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all these we ask of thee, because thou being our King and Almighty. See, the kingdom is none other than the church that God has sovereignly decreed to be the body and bride of Jesus Christ. And so anyone then who is a member of the church of Jesus Christ is part of this kingdom of God. And so when we pray in the final words of the Lord's Prayer, Thine is the kingdom, and we confess that God has the right to do as He pleases with the church, then this means I mustn't object and I mustn't become angry when God does things in the church that are different than how I would have done things. If I look around and I see other members of the church who perhaps aren't living as godly of lives as what I wish they were living. And perhaps even it's my own children who are walking in ways of disobedience or rebellion against God. And who am I to become angry at the king over the kingdom if my children have not grown in sanctification to the point where I wish that they were at? It's not my kingdom. 
it God's. For thine is the kingdom. To confess that God's is the kingdom is to confess that God has the right to determine who will be in His kingdom and who will be outside of the kingdom. In Ephesians 3 that we read, Paul spoke of the reality that the Gentiles were taken into the kingdom. Genesis 3, verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. And again, who are we then to object when God reveals the lines of election and reprobation? And when God cuts off those who obstinately persist in sin, His is the kingdom. And He determines who will be a part of that body of Jesus Christ. That God's is the kingdom means that He rules as King exclusively and forever. Jesus Christ taught us to pray for Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And we mustn't imagine that that word forever only modifies the final word of that clause, glory, that His glory is only forever. But rather, forever modifies all three, the kingdom and the power and the glory. His kingdom is forever. If forever will be the case that God is king over the kingdom. When the next generation rises up and God has taken this generation off of this earth into heaven, we need not worry what will happen to the future of God's church upon this earth for His is the kingdom forever. But it's not just the case that God's will be the kingdom forever into the future, but rather the meaning is that God God's always has had the kingdom. The kingdom always has belonged unto God. The kingdom presently does belong unto God. And the kingdom always will belong unto God. And so as we look back over the pages of history and we see what we judge to be terrible things that have happened unto the kingdom. Things that have caused the citizens of the kingdom great hurt and great harm. We must acknowledge, beloved, that God as King was the absolute sovereign, the undisputed ruler who controlled those events that we would say harmed the kingdom. When there was schism among the, the brothers of the sons of Jacob, and Joseph was sold off into slavery, God was king over that. When Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, was hanged upon the cross and died an innocent death, He was king 
for it happened according to his determinate counsel. When COVID hit the church, God was king. When President Biden was put in office, God was king. When division tears apart church and families, God is king forever. We understand that God's is the kingdom, then we understand what a compelling motive we have to pray unto Him. We pray unto Him because His is the kingdom. The little word for that Jesus Christ gave unto His disciples indicates that reality when He said, when He concluded the words starting with the word for, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That word for indicates that Jesus Christ is giving unto us here a reason to pray unto God. This is why we have previously lifted up these six petitions unto God and going through the Lord's Prayer. This is why the Christian earnestly beseeches God for all of the blessings that come from God for because God's is the kingdom. And if it were not the case that God's is the kingdom, then I as pastor would be remiss to instruct you to pray unto Him. If the kingdom belonged unto someone else, if the kingdom belonged to the elders, if the kingdom belonged to the minister or to the deacons, if the kingdom belonged to the President of the United States, then I would have to instruct you not to pray unto God, but to turn unto the One to whom the kingdom belongs. But because the kingdom does not belong to the pastor, the elders, or the deacons, but the kingdom belongs to God and God alone. We turn to Him in prayer. For Thine is the kingdom. How does understanding that God's is the kingdom motivate us to pray to Him? You could list out a number of reasons how and why this motivates us to pray, but two, we list out now of why this motivates us to pray to Him. First of all, this knowledge that God's is the kingdom compels us to pray unto Him because it means it is God's duty to care for the citizens of the kingdom. We lift up our petitions unto God because God has the responsibility to care for the citizens of His kingdom. Now we mustn't imagine here that by us lifting up our prayer unto God and saying, Thine is the kingdom, that we are reminding God that His is the kingdom as if God had forgotten that His is the kingdom. Now God always knows with a perfect knowledge that His is the kingdom. 
It's not for God's benefit that we say His is the kingdom, but it is for our benefit. It is so that we might be reminded that God's is the kingdom. You see how easy it is for us as we go through this earthly pilgrimage to forget that God's is the kingdom. And what happens when we forget that the kingdom belongs to God and that it's God's duty to care for and to protect and to nourish the citizens of the kingdom? As soon as we forget that God's is the kingdom, we become anxious and we become worried because we start looking out and looking around and seeing all of these problems and concerns and we feel that these things have to be taken into our hands and that we have to find a remedy and a solution to these problems. And it causes our blood pressure to go up as we get concerned about all the things that we see wrong in the kingdom. What comfort it is to you and to all of God's people to know that God's is the kingdom. It's His duty to care for the citizens of His kingdom. Secondly, the knowledge that God's is the kingdom compels us to pray unto Him when we are reminded of the fact that not only is it God's duty to care for the citizens, but God knows the citizens and God knows the needs of the citizens. To change from the language of a kingdom to that of shepherding, Jesus in John chapter 10 said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. He knows what are the needs of the citizens of the kingdom, and he knows with a perfect understanding, a much more complete and full understanding than we who are creatures of the dust could ever know. And so being reminded that God knows what are the needs of the sheep, the citizens of his kingdom, compels us to go unto him in prayer, for thine is the kingdom. We lift up to Him our petitions, our prayers, even our prayers for others, that God would bless others. But then we conclude our prayers acknowledging Thou knowest what is best, and may Thy will be done and not mine. For Thine is the kingdom and the power. Jesus teaches us to go on. Thine is the kingdom and the power. And how important it is for us to understand that the power is God's. For if God were the king, but he were impotent, then there would be no benefit in praying to him. If God was the one who sat upon the throne and who claimed that he ruled over all of the nations, of this earth, and yet God lacked the ability to exercise and to carry out His will upon all of the nations of the earth, then what use would there be in praying to God? 
For thine is, Jesus teaches us to pray, the power. That we ascribe the power unto God means that we confess that God has the ability to accomplish His will. That word power in the original is very closely related to the English word dynamite. And it calls attention to this almost explosive ability, this this unstoppable power that goes forth. God, as the God of power, is a uniquely powerful God. He is the Elohim, the God who is transcendent in His power. It's not as if God is one of other powers. It's not as if God must constantly be contending for His power fighting off others who would try to steal or usurp that power from Him. But His is the power. There is no power upon this earth except that power have its source and its origin in God Himself. We do not so much as have the power to take another breath, to inhale oxygen into our lungs, except God give unto us the power. For thine is the power. God's power is the ability by which all things came into existence. By the power of His Word, He spoke, and it stood fast. His power, by the power of His outstretched arm, God upholds all things in heaven above and in earth below. What we call His providence. His power governs whether I have sickness or whether I have health. Whether I have prosperity or poverty. Whether I have fruitful years or whether I have barren years. For thine is the power. How stark is the contrast between the omnipotence of God on the one hand and the impotence and weakness of man on the other hand. Who are we in comparison to this great God? We're dust. We come forth from dust. We toil for a while upon the dust. And then our body returns to the dust. How great is our God. But what we must understand as well about the power of God is that His power is a loving power. When we think of the power of God, we've described the power of God as the ability to do as He pleases. Nothing can hinder Him and nothing can stop Him. But we mustn't imagine that God, being the omnipotent one, has this unrestrained ability to do as He pleases and thus is going to exercise that power in a selfish way, in a tyrannical way, in a way that would cause hurt upon even His own children. That's not the power of God. 
but rather the Scripture set forth that the power of God is characterized by love. The power that He exercises upon His children always is a loving and a gracious power. Ephesians chapter 3 helps us understand that God's power is always characterized by His love. Now, when we say always, we speak now specifically of God's dealing with His children, His elect and covenant children. Ephesians 3 verse 16, we read that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. This verse shows unto us that God's power is a loving power in this way. God shares His strength. He gives of His strength that you would be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. If God's power was exclusively about Himself, and He was going to yield that power in ways that was not for the good of His children, then God would never have shared of His power. He would not give unto you to be strengthened with might in the inner man. But the fact that God does not retain and hold His power exclusively for Himself, but that He gives unto His children the ability to be strengthened with might shows that God's power is a loving power. And then Paul goes on here in verse 17. Why would we be strengthened with might? Verse 17, here's the reason. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ. What is the purpose of God strengthening you with might in the inner man? It is so that you would know what are the dimensions of God's love for you. Can you see, beloved, how God's power goes from love to love? It's in love for you that God regenerates you, quickens you, so that you are strengthened with might in the inner man. And then what is the purpose of God strengthening you with might in the inner man? It's so that you would go from His love to His love. So that you could begin to understand the length and the breadth and the depth of His love for you. His power. A loving power. How amazing is the power of His love. So amazing that we can hardly begin to fathom the almighty dimensions of His love. 
manifested most clearly to us through the incarnation, the suffering, and the innocent condemnation of His Son, Jesus Christ, to death. There was revealed the loving power of God. The God who was King over His kingdom, the God who had determined from before the foundations of the world that He would save His people through the sacrifice of that Lamb, the God then who sent His Son into this world and who with His outstretched arm poured out upon His Son the curse for the sins of the citizens of His kingdom. How unfathomable is the powerful love that God has for His citizens. Because God's is the power, we pray to Him. If His wasn't the power, again, I would be remiss to instruct you to pray to Him. If there was somebody over God, if there was somebody to whom He answered, or if there was somebody from whom He derived His power, then I must, I would be bound, duty bound, to instruct you to pray to that higher power. But because there is no higher power, but His is the power, to redeem unto Himself His people through Jesus Christ. Then the calling given unto you is pray unto Him. For His is the power and the glory. Jesus Christ teaches us to conclude the prayer. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That we ascribe unto God the glory means that we confess that God is the infinitely beautiful God. He is the God who is radiant with His perfections. The God who dwells in pure light. The God who is separate perfectly from darkness, the God who eschews evil and who delights in that which is upright and just and truth. Jesus teaches us to pray, His is the glory. There is nothing that we as human beings can do that will add to or contribute to the perfections and the beauty of God. His is the glory forever. Before you were created out of the dust, before you had your existence in this local congregation, God's was the glory. And after God takes us off of this earth and we go to our eternal Rest, our eternal home, God's will be the glory. 
or something that we do well to keep on the forefront of our minds. That God is the glorious God and He always will be the glorious God. And God is not dependent upon us to contribute or add to His glory. How easily we can become proud and think that we have such an important place within the kingdom and that God in some way depends upon me. And if it were not for my contributions and my service and my going out of the way to give to the causes of the kingdom, then somehow perhaps the glory of God would be diminished. God forbid that such a proud thought would ever rise up in our minds. It's not our glory, but it's God's. And He will be glorified without you or me or anyone else. For He is the Almighty King. God's glory. With the eyes of faith, God gives unto us the ability to have a glimpse of His glory. For as long as we are upon this earth, it is but a glimpse, is it not? Because of our sinfulness, Because of our imperfections, we cannot behold yet the full radiance of His perfections. Moses saw but the backside of the glory of God and he was blinded. Even the angels of Isaiah chapter 6 had to cover their eyes because the glory of God was so bright. But a glimpse that God gives unto us while we are on this earth, and yet nonetheless, God does, and His love for the citizens give us that glimpse of His glory. God takes us, as it were, up upon the mountaintop. And there on the mountaintop, God gives us the ability to look around and to see manifestations of His perfections as they shine forth. We see God revealed as the one who has tender and loving care over all things, even the birds of the air. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. We see... God's glory revealed through creation, even in the lilies of the field. For even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like unto one of these. God's glory is so great that John said under the inspiration of the Spirit that... I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Well, on this earth, we wait until at last God takes us into heaven and there we will be face to face 
with the revelation of the perfection of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because God's is the glory, we pray to Him. I cannot imagine a more desirable person to speak unto in prayer than God Himself. The beautiful, the transcendent, the loving, the gracious, the forbearing, the forgiving, Lord of hosts. And the more we come to see His glory revealed through us in in creation and revealed to us more especially in His Word, the more we want to have sweet communion and fellowship with Him. So we lift up our petitions to Him. For His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord and our God, we plead of Thee that Thou wouldst grant unto us according to the riches of Thy glory that we would be strengthened with might by Thy Spirit in the inner man And that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, so that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of Thy love to us through Jesus Christ. Forgive whatever we did or said in sin, Receive our worship for Jesus' sake. Amen.